This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome. Welcome to Tau Unbound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. I'm Ido Aharon, your host, and I'm very, very happy to have with us today Professor Irit Bak, Dr. Irit Bak. Welcome to our studio. Thank Such you. a pleasure to have you. Uh, Irit Bak is an expert in contemporary African studies, expertise among other fields, Islam and Africa, and even something we'll talk about today, Holocaust in Africa, which is a fascinating subject. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me here. Tell us a little bit about your, your own academic background. Uh, when did you discover that Africa is your uh, area of expertise? I think it's uh, something that uh, began in my childhood. Uh, I, I love to read uh, books of adventure or discover of uh, Africa, like uh, uh, Tarzan, and uh, there was a Hebrew uh, book by Nahum Gutman, Luben Gulu, Melech Zulu, King of Zulu, and other uh, adventure books. And But, but uh, the time that uh, I decided that I, I need to know more about Africa was uh, after my uh, military service, I was working in an absorption uh, center uh, at Afula. I was grown in Afula. <laughs> and uh, it was the first group of uh, Ethiopian Jews that came to Israel. And I worked with them. I, I taught uh, Hebrew to the children. And uh, I was fascinated by this community of people, you know, they was with self-respect. And I felt that they have a very rich history and culture behind them. And I didn't know nothing. Nobody knew nothing about this community. It was kind of a surprise. And then I decided that I must go to learn about Africa. And uh, I, I came to Tel Aviv University and uh, arrived to the Department of African History, but also Middle Eastern. And my, my own academic uh, path is uh, combining uh, Middle Eastern and uh, African history, but my first and primary uh, interest is in Africa. And today you're teaching at the Department of African History. Yes, for many, many years. <laughs> yes, and, um, you know, so you're describing a process that I'm assuming that every person that was exposed to Africa is going through, right? We go from the initial basic romantic view of Africa as a tribal society, very traditional society, into understanding more of the complexity of Africa, right? It goes way beyond our romantic view of Africa. So what, what have you learned that you can share with us over the years that things that we should know about Africa that we don't know? Yes, we have kind of slogan of Africanists that say that Africa is not a country, it's a continent. And people used to think about Africa as a single country and not as 54 countries. And what I learned about Ethiopia, for example, it's very different from uh, other parts of Africa. And uh, I thought about Africa, for example, as a uh, tribal and Christian maybe, but not as Muslim. And I found uh, that Islam in Africa is very prominent. So, so let's, let's provide our listeners and our viewers with some historical context. So let's say Africa of the last several 
centuries, who were the foreign players that shaped Africa today? So I know your specialty is the French-speaking African countries, but there were other uh, powers at the time. So give us a little bit of a historical background. Of course, there are all the colonial powers, especially France and Britain, but uh, also uh, other countries such as Portugal and even Belgium. We used to think about uh, Belgium as, uh, you know, as chocolate and beer. <laughs> but uh, they're, they're, for a long time, they were uh, exercised very harsh colonialism in uh, Belgian Congo. I know. Uh, By the way, you should know, I have a very large family in Africa. And they lived in Congo, in a town that was known then as Elizabethville, what today is Kinshasa. And then they moved to South Africa, where they still live until this very day. So I'm very familiar with the history of, of uh, the Jews of Africa, especially Congo. Wow, <laughs> it's very unique. Uh, and um, but uh, you know, I want to. To concentrate on the on the African part of history, on the African view of history, even when I start to study here at Tel Aviv University, most of the history was written by European, and um, uh, my view is that I must learn the African view about. Oh, the I'll say more than that. Most of the people that wrote about Africa late 19th century never been to Africa. Yeah, they used to call it armchair anthropology. Someone sat in London and wrote about. A continent they've never been to. Yeah, and uh, it's still today, you know, most of the conference that uh, I'm attending uh, are in Europe or in the United States, and still the, the, the Africans should claim more history to, to write a more history by themselves. And this is my view, because it's... Uh, actually, I, I read, you know, English, French, uh, Arabic, but... Uh, even I myself, I'm not so familiar with many, many African languages. So um, this is my claim, but I'm not only, always following it. So, so one of the first things that you would like us to know about Africa is that Africa is complex. It's not just one territorial unit, but rather, you know, a very wide range of cultures and languages and, and, and tribes and nationalities and so on. And beyond that, you would say that there was a very strong religious element. Was there a clash uh, between the introduction of religion and tribal nature of those societies? So, for example, when Christianity was introduced, we know it was introduced by force. Uh, I don't know what was the case with Islam. Uh, what can you tell us about that uh, uh, introduction of religion to Africa? I think that uh, both Islam and Christianity were in some way absorbed with um, with uh, local religions, local beliefs. And uh, one of my um, um, discoveries was that there are today mega churches in Africa. People, you know, like 50,000 people arrived to Sunday ceremony in places like uh, Lagos, Nigeria, for example. And it's very vivid, the, the Christianity there, but it's some kind 
of mixture between uh, universal uh, known uh, Christianity like uh, Catholic and uh, or Protestant and, uh, and local beliefs and local uh, tradition and even local religions. And uh, also this is the case, the case with Islam. Islam is much more uh, uh, deep-rooted in Africa it's since its beginning it arrived there. And also, but also Islam, it's some kind of a variation of uh, of local and universal i think it's everywhere the same but in africa it's more uh, known uh, this mixture and i think that religion is very strong all over both uh, islam christianity and also tradition uh, uh, traditional beliefs and some kind of mixture between them so so you you would say that it's a god-fearing continent by and large So they, 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 whatever God they believe in, they believe in God. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's some kind of, um, it's, it's unique. I think that Christianity, for example, why it's declined in other places in the world, in Africa, it's just uh, blooming, you know, all over the continent. And so is Islam. And uh, I think that there is something that's really be, uh, related to the religio religiosity of the people, people. Uh, you know, inherit religious, but they have their own way uh, of religion that combine their own beliefs with the more universal beliefs. And I know from my experience in the United States that the, um, um, uh, what we call evangelical Christianity is having a keen interest in what's happening in Africa. And, and I know that because many of the broadcast organizations, television and radio stations are operating in Africa. And so it's uh, it's a place where Evangelical Christianity is on the rise. Yes. And you mentioned Nigeria. We, we see the, uh, the Nigerian pilgrims visiting Israel all the time. I see their buses all the time, at least before COVID. They used to come here in big numbers. So, uh, so tell us about their reflections of the Holocaust in, in, in Africa. What's their um, Holocaust experience? What's their view of the Holocaust? Okay, so I have to combine you know, my own story um, because both my parents were Holocaust survivors and um, the story of the Holocaust, it, I, I, I feel detached for most of my life because uh, that's why maybe I choose to, to go to Africa, to, to another place, to another continent. But um, I noticed that I, I'm looking um, to research and uh, learn about genocides in Africa. <laughs> and I wonder why this has happened, because, you know, it's very difficult to... Like, I heard the word Darfur, and I didn't know much about it, but I started to learn, to research, to teach. And uh, I wonder what, what is... What attracted me to this kind of genocide? And my recent research deals with the way that regional organization can mediate in conflicts in Africa. And, um, and I recently understand that uh, it's my own background, my own story. For example, I was uh, visiting Ethiopia. In one of the cities, there I saw children that selling books on uh, on the street, they sit on a blanket, and uh, I saw Anna Frank in Amharic. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I talk with the children. I ask them why, why, uh, who is Anna Frank? And they knew a lot about her. And these are children that are not attending school. You know, they don't have formal education. And 
one of my first thought was what is the relation between Anna Frank and African states or societies? What is the memory of Anna Frank? And uh, I think that my own story, that my mother's story resembles a lot of Anna Frank's story. She spent most of her childhood years as in isolated room, you know, with many old people, and uh, but she didn't lose her optimistic view about life. And, and I felt that there is a connection. And I start to look uh, for other cases, for example, South Africa. I learned that Nelson Mandela, while he was in prison for many years, he was, uh, there was a copy of Anna Frank Diary, say that it was, you know, <laughs> almost torn to part because everybody read it. And he said that Anna Frank was uh, his role model as uh, the the victory of uh, human spirit over depression. So it's, depression. A, it's a universal message. Yeah, and he it's, also mentioned uh, when he, in his uh, incarnation speech, uh, Anna Frank, and you even Holocaust studies as part of South Africa uh, curriculum. So the, 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 the victory of the oppressed human spirit is inspirational to many African leaders and many African nations, and which leads me to, you know, after all, we are here in Israel, and what did we get wrong about Africa? And I ask this question as a diplomat because, you know, Israelis remember Golda Meir because of the 1973 war, and somehow, tragically, they forgot all the great things that Golda did. Uh, among them, she was the uh, Israeli leader that opened Africa to Israel in her famous um, uh, tour of African nations when she was a foreign, sir, a foreign minister. What did we get wrong about Africa? Why? Why? Uh, it seems to me that Israel did not fully utilize the potential and did not fully realize how how important Africa is for Israel. Yeah, uh, sure, You're right. But I'm not sure that it's only our fault because you know the 50s and the 60s, as you mentioned before, was kind of honeymoon uh, of the relation uh, between Israel and uh, African, many African states. But since, since 67 and moreover after 1973 uh, war, uh, Yom Kippur war, uh, most of African states uh, broke up a, a diplomatic relation with Israel and it was kind of think of maybe national trauma. <laughs> because we consider them formerly as our friend, but you know, uh, and then gradually we returned to Africa. Actually, we never left all all uh, uh, all uh, together. But uh, I think that uh, the way that we came back or uh, re uh, returned to Africa was a um, little bit more complex than before than before seventy three, because I don't think that we have some kind of uh, national policy of foreign affairs uh, regarding Africa. We see just you know um, a country here isolated country and not um, not right. uh, the continent as a whole. 
right. and now you know we're struggling to get our uh, um, position well, uh, it's one observer of the observer position in the African Union and yeah. it's still very complicated for example South Africa with which I mentioned before uh, kind of have anti anti-israeli uh, position in the African Union because of former Israel supported apartheid regime and so so on and so uh, it's kind of complicated relation and we don't see the the benefits of of a holistic maybe uh, attitude toward the uh, African uh, states and continent right and that's a common Israeli failure um, I don't think that we in Israel truly understand the meaning of strategy uh, maybe it has a lot to do with the fact that we have the military experience but um, uh, maybe it's the fact that we are objectively um, you know under so many threats and where you're being threatened it's very difficult to come up with a strategy with a long-term strategy but go back to Africa what do you think we should be doing in Africa that we're not doing as as a continent you mentioned South Africa certainly South Africa is a central country to the continent but so is Nigeria and with Nigeria we have wonderful wonderful diplomatic ties uh, what do you think we should be doing that we're not doing in terms of one thing is develop a holistic strategy beyond that you know some of my former students from example uh, are living in for example in Rwanda and they uh, think that uh, maybe the the message of Israel should be the export of education uh, educational program or experience uh, usually we talk about agriculture and uh, irrigation and all this kind but maybe you know uh, we should be um, a more uh, we should advance more maybe uh, ideas such as uh, our education for example education for disabled kids one of my, uh, my students is uh, engaged in a program for uh, children on the autistic spectrum in Rwanda, for example. We have a lot to contribute and also to learn, by the way, not just to contribute. But we have many ways to do, except, you know, for security and security uh, affairs. Uh, we have to think more broadly about uh, about. Um, uh, all kind of uh, domains that we can uh, be engaged. Uh, even uh, I think uh, um, in a kind of mishar, uh, I forgot the word. Trade. Trade. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't have enough trade relations with the African states, for example. Uh, well, one of the obstacles, one of the hurdles, is that um, we are um, we have to comply with the American standard. Um, and the American standard is very harsh when it comes to, and rightly so, when it comes to uh, corruption and, and, of course, uh, bribery in Africa. That's why you don't see too many American corporations doing business in Africa because they simply cannot accept the, uh, um, the way business is done. Do you, do you see any chance that this will change in the near future? Right now, the Chinese are you know, are the dominant trade and commerce and infrastructure force in Africa. Uh, do you see any any chance of that changing in the foreseeable future? 
No, one uh, in the last summit of uh, U.S. and Africa leaders, uh, recently uh, the the American uh, came with a new plan, I think, for Africa, which includes a lot of investment and the new way of uh, involvement in uh, many fields. And uh, I think uh, they understand the Chinese threat, as you mentioned before, because. Uh, China uh, is involved everywhere in uh, Africa and, uh, and, you know, they they are less uh, cautious about uh, dealing with a country that's suspected as corrupted and undemocratic. And I think the U.S. understand now that uh, what should be done. That they didn't do before uh, regarding Africa. Yet, you know, it's just this kind of uh, uh, like Biden uh, period. We don't know what will be uh, later. What will be the the uh, policy of the next uh, the next uh, government uh, in the uh, United States? And there is a lack of con- uh, consi- consistent. Um, a vision regarding Africa, both in the United States and here. And, you know, my, my late cousin, who was a, a very successful businessman in Africa, and uh, as I mentioned, he, he was raised in the Congo. He was born in the Congo. And, uh, and then in 1975, after the revolution, his business was nationalized. And he had to flee down south to South Africa, where he started from scratch and build another business empire. And so he, he was a very, unfortunately he died five years ago. He was a very um, astute observer of the African continent. And he told me many, many years ago that the world is observing what's happening with South Africa very, very closely. And it will have an impact on the way the world will view the entire continent. And he said, if the investments, especially of the Europeans in South Africa, will not yield results, if the South Africans will not take advantage of this opportunity and turn South Africa into a global power, um, then it will be a very bad sign for the whole continent. I think the jury is still out about what will happen in South Africa. But what do you, where do you see South Africa going from here, economically, politically? Uh, I think it's very complicated uh, answer, you know, because uh, there was the euphoria of the post-apartheid, the Mandela uh, period of uh, governance. Uh, it's it's South Africa. Yet now we know that uh, the story of corruption, of lack of infrastructures, of uh, the decline of the many uh, areas of life is very notable all over South Africa. Yet uh, we should also see that, you know, there is a different uh, kind of um, a socio-economic mobility in the South African society and people that were not just not just uh, can't vote, but they can't go anywhere. You know, in terms of education and uh, financial opportunities, are doing better now in South Africa. So it's very complex. Complex, you know, because you can see the the wrong side of the development of the. ANC and the South African state, but uh, you can look, uh, if you look at uh, history, you see that it's more complex uh, picture than we see it, you know, just... Uh, can, can um, is the Israeli-South African ties 
um, can be can they be salvaged? Can we save them? I don't know. Maybe uh, in the post ANC uh, period, because the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, still I think have a lot of uh, uh, the former images of uh, Israel as the post as a supporter of the apartheid regime, and uh, uh, in this uh, kind of. Uh, political constellation in uh, South Africa. I'm not sure uh, if they can look at, um, at, um, uh, at the relation uh, with Israel differently. Although we have a lot of ties with uh, South Africa, of course, but politically, you know, uh, official political stand of the diplomacy in South Africa, I don't see a change coming soon. I'm, I'm not so, sure, of course. But yeah, obviously, there's a lot to be said about the reasons that brought Israel to collaborate with the South African under apartheid. And one of them was the fact that Israel was facing um, a global economic boycott and and uh, we didn't have too many partners in the world, so we didn't have the luxury of being too choosy. Uh, is there a chance that they will ever get that message, the ANC folks? I don't know. I, I know that many people in South Africa are looking forward to do to political change that uh, I think that maybe the ANC, you know, done a historic uh, job and maybe there will be uh, some kind of political uh, uh, transformation. And uh, so uh, I can't say, you know, I'm a historian, I'm not. (laughs) Now, uh, it's rare that we have here in this uh, Tau Unbound an expert on, on an entire continent. So if you can vary from, from 30,000 feet above, if you look at the continent, tell us where to look at. What are the interesting things that are happening all over the place, countries, phenomenons that we should be paying attention to? It's the youngest continent. It's the youngest in terms of age? In terms of age and demography, of course. And uh, and in terms of countries, do you see, for example, I, I recently uh, developed an interest in Cote d'Ivoire in the Ivory Coast, which, by the way, they canceled that name. They're no longer allowed to use the name Ivory Coast, only Cote d'Ivoire. So they're loyal to their French heritage. Yes. So Cote d'Ivoire is a very interesting country, right? I think it's an up-and-coming player in, in eastern in Western Africa. Uh, Tanzania seems like an up-and-coming player on the eastern side of Africa, Madagascar and so on. Do you see any other interesting places like that? Of course, Rwanda. Rwanda is a very interesting place, you know, with uh, all uh, post-genocide reconstruction uh, plan. And, you know, uh, she's functioned very well in some kind of... uh, of, places but not for example in democracy uh, but uh, I think there is a very interesting uh, process of democracy and democratization in many African states for example in Kenya in Ghana uh, South Africa of course even Nigeria you know with all its problem uh, they have k- kind of a uh, Impressing process of democratization, yet many countries are uh, uh, facing again coup d'etat, like it was uh, many, many years ago, you know. So uh, also it's mixed, you know, it's not uh, one-dimensional, but I think uh, if you look in process of democracy and democratization, I think young people is part of this process because they no longer want to be part of 
the, you know, the old dictatorship regimes of Africa, they want a change. And also I, I uh, maybe recommend to look about the, the effect of a cellular phone and, the, uh, and all the uh, Facebook and all the, the Instagram uh, on young people on, uh, all over Africa because uh, it's very common to have cell phone. Even if you don't have a road in your village, but you still have a cell phone. So you know what is happening everywhere. And people, for example, when they uh, look at the corruption, uh, the election, for example, they can take photo of, uh, of uh, corruption in election and, and distribute it in uh, social uh, networks. So this is a huge phenomenon, I think, that uh, we should look at because it's uh, the effect of, example, uh, cell phone and young people. So the, the penetration of cell phone and social media platforms among the younger generation in Africa is very impressive and very much like the Tahrir Square riots. It does play a role in the political process in Africa. There's no question about that. I think that, um, that we should also consider the fact that um, the you know they're far more through the smartphone they can learn a lot about the world i know that from other work that i do that they that the ratio of participation of young people from africa in international projects using their smartphones is just incredible and people don't have a an appreciation of it we i was involved in a project called who will be the next einstein where global youth about 75000 people young people participate in, in solving a scientific problem online. And many of the participants were from Africa and uh, they simply used their cell phone. Uh, that's a wonderful, a wonderful phenomenon. Well, Dr. Buck, such a pleasure to have you with us today. We learned so much about Africa. We learned so much about the unique connection between Africa and the narrative of Anne Frank and the Holocaust, a narrative of resilience and perseverance and the spirit and the victory of the human spirit. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank and you. to our listeners and our viewers, thank you for being with us. Until the next episode, bye-bye from Tel Aviv. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomats.